So good morning, everyone. I am uh, Matt Fender, and this week we're picking up with week three of our class on presuppositional apologetics. Um, Let me pray for us, and then we will get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather here this morning. Thank you for the Lord's Day. Thank you for your church. We pray that you will bless us this morning, Father, as we study apologetics and seek to learn how to better defend the faith and give an answer for the hope that is in us. Help us to be attentive. Help me to be wise and thoughtful and precise in my speech. Um, We pray also for the children that are being instructed upstairs this morning uh, and for those who are teaching them, Father. We pray that for each and every one of those children, he will grow to say that he never knew a day when he was not trusting in Christ for salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we are uh, picking up here, and we'll do a little review of what we did last week. Our our goal in this class, of course, is to... um, to get better at apologetics, and we're focusing in particular on the presuppositional apologetic method, and I'll explain more about that as we go on. Uh, last week, we looked, we did an introduction to worldviews. We talked about the authority of Scripture, and we dealt with the basics of the Christian worldview. So we're going to sort of delve into that. Um, on the authority of Scripture, you know, Martin Luther very famously told us that justification is the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. And while I certainly agree with that, um, I think in some sense we can say that it's even below that it's really the inerrancy of Scripture, because without Scripture you wouldn't know about the doctrine of justification, right? Our only way of, of having that knowledge is because it's revealed to us in the Word. And so I think in a very real sense, the inerrancy of Scripture is the most foundational doctrine um, that we have in our faith. And you see that in the, uh, in the Westminster Confession, where that's how the first chapter starts. You also see it in Calvin's Institute, because he starts the same way. And we looked at that a little bit last week. Um, in terms of kind of our basis for belief, how we know what we know and how we build the foundation of our faith, um, to say that you are a Christian, and perhaps the the essence, the sine qua non of being a Christian is to say that, you know, I believe there's, there's God, He has a holy law, I've broken it, and Jesus, His Son, died for my sins and was raised from the dead, right? If that's sort of the essence of which you must believe to be a Christian, the only way you can know that is because, you, because of the Bible, right? Because of the Word. Either you read it yourself or somebody explained it to you. And in order for that to be true, in order for you to be able to reasonably believe that, you have to believe the Bible's true. And if the Bible's true, then it must necessarily all be true. Because if you believe that if you get to pick and choose the parts of the Bible you like, then the Bible isn't really your ultimate authority. Then you're the ultimate authority, right? And you're just saying, no, no, whatever I think is the ultimate authority, and I like these parts of the Bible, so I'm going to believe them. But if that's the case then you have no basis for your belief other than your own emotions, your own intuitions, your own instincts, but you're not really relying upon the Word of God. So if, if the Word of God is truly the foundation of what you believe, of how you live your life, of your faith, then you've got to believe all of it if you're going to be consistent. Thing. And how do we know the Bible is true? Right At the very bottom of our network of presuppositions, how do we know the Bible is true? And the answer for the Christian is, that I believe the Bible is true because of the witness of the Holy Spirit, right? It is, it is transcendental revelation. And when I'm talking to the secular modernist, the agnostic, the atheist, 
We've got to readily concede. Sir, I, I understand that you don't believe the Bible is true at this moment, that you, you have not had the work, work of the Holy Spirit in your heart, and I, I completely understand that. But I'm sure you will concede that that is the basis for my worldview. So now let's talk about your current worldview, and we're going to do more of that a little later. But we've, we've got to concede that. We must, because it is the basis of our belief. Um, so at the core of doing presuppositional apologetics, we have to understand the nature of each person's ultimate authority. I was just alluding to that a moment ago. But that's what we're trying to get at when we're, when we're doing this apologetic method is what is your ultimate authority? And what we're trying to do is expose the fact that in dealing with the secularist, there is no ultimate authority other than the man's own opinion, which is based on nothing, at least nothing that he can point to. Um, the, for the unbeliever, his ultimate authority is ultimately himself. And I'll point out to you that this is true even if you're dealing with someone who purports to believe in some other transcendental authority. And I said this last week, and this is sort of a new thing in my teaching on this, is that if you're talking to a man or a woman, for example, who is a Muslim, who says, no, my ultimate authority is the Koran in Arabic. And I believe that's true, and therefore I base my worldview on that, and that tells me all about Allah and Muhammad as prophet. Um, it's still true in that case that that man is his own ultimate authority because we know as an article of faith that that information is false, and he does not, in fact, have a transcendental revelation that it's true. Now, you probably maybe it's not going to be an effective thing to say, but understanding that that's true is going to be helpful in how we take that worldview apart. All right, so that was the bit on the authority of Scripture. Now let's review our stuff on worldviews. Sorry for the obvious typo here. What is a worldview? Well, we said a worldview is a network of presuppositions which are not tested by natural science in terms of which all experience is related and interpreted. And a presupposition is a, a basic belief, something that you, you accept is true and which you use to interpret reality and live your life. And we all have a network of those that makes up a worldview. And everybody has a worldview. You, any, uh, maybe some, you might not know the term, but everybody walking around out there on Grove Avenue right now has a worldview, because otherwise you just couldn't live your life, right? And the, the key to defending the faith using the presuppositional method, is to understand your opponent's worldview. Because what we're doing here fundamentally is not piling up evidence to try to persuade somebody that the Bible is true. What we're doing is taking apart, dismantling, exposing the other person's worldview. Because you can't talk somebody into believing in Christ. But what you can do is expose that their current worldview is inconsistent, irrational, and absurd, and thus clear the way for the gospel. So consider that every thought, experience, or sensation that you have is interpreted, is seen in the context of your worldview that allows you to relate it to other thoughts, experiences, or sensations, right? Otherwise, you couldn't function. You would wake up in the morning with no idea of who you are or what you're supposed to do or how to deal with the reality that's around you. Um, and I gave you the example of eating the cheeseburger, right? That when you, when you take the bite of the cheeseburger, 
you experience you know, a series of sensations through your senses. You smell it, you taste it, you see it, and you necessarily process those inputs and compare them to other past experiences that you've had because you've, you've eaten many cheeseburgers in the past, and because this, the taste of this cheeseburger is similar to other past cheeseburgers, you can deduce that this is a wholesome meal that you can consume that's going to nourish your body and not make you sick. And if it tasted rotten, you, w- you would stop, right? You wouldn't take another bite because as you compare it to those other ex- experiences, you're, you're, you're processing and relating to it. And we do that with every, every single experience thing that we do. We, we compare it and relate it to our worldview. So with respect to the Christian worldview, and this is circling back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about the inerrancy of Scripture, if you are committed to Christ for any part of your life, then you must necessarily be committed to Christ in every area of your life. Why is that? Well, because if the claims of the Bible are true, if Jesus was raised from the dead, then that is the most important fact in all history. And it is necessarily uh, requires you to orient the rest of your life around it, right? Because if, if it's true that there's, you know, a triune eternal God and he has a holy law and he expects us to keep it and we haven't, and absent Christ will, will suffer eternal punishment, but with Christ we will suffer, you know, we will we'll spend our eternity in the new heavens and the new earth with Jesus, then, well, that's got to be the most important thing. And we necessarily must orient the rest of our lives around it. If it's not true, then, then go home. You, there's no reason for you to be here. There's no reason for us to even do this or have a church um, because we are to be pitied for committing ourselves to something which is false. But of course, it is true. Um, so if we're going to have a worldview, the three main areas of philosophy that make up a worldview, and I'm going to use some vaguely technical terms here, but you don't need these terms. You don't need to even remember them. But these are the things that your worldview answers for you, right? Um, and the first is metaphysics. Metaphysics is a study of the nature of reality, of origins, who man is, and the nature of history. So this gives us question. This is sort of your meaning of life kind of, kind of stuff. You know, who, who are we? What are we supposed to do? What is good or evil? How did the world originate? You know, what's what, what the, the creation question? Um, and where is the world going? Those are all the kinds of questions we answer with metaphysics. And, and those are questions that the secular materialist really doesn't have any answers to, right? Because if you, the, the, this is not something you can prove by science. You know, someone might mumble something to you about the Big Bang, but you can just ask one more question. Say, oh, well, what caused that? And crickets, right? There is no, no knowable answer through natural science. Um, any, any kind of you know, transcendental religious system is going to have some kind of answer for this. Um, but the secular materialist does not. Now, some of you um, who've made some study of um, economics or, uh, or political science might have heard of you know, Marx and Hegel and they, this idea that history is marching in a direction, right? And they said, well, it's marching towards you know, this sort of communism and, and the state's going to wither away and all that sort of stuff. Well, they were wrong about that. But what they were right about was that history is indeed moving in a direction. It's not random, it's moving towards the eschaton. It's moving towards the fulfillment. It's moving towards Jesus coming back and instituting the new heavens and the new earth. So that's absolutely true, and we do have an answer to that. So anyway, epistemology, next, and this is probably the most unfamiliar term to most of us, epistemology is the branch of philosophy where we study knowledge and how we know what we know. Um, it asks questions about the nature of truth and objectivity, how we can truly know anything, 
and how we can rely on science and reason. And this is another one that, again, if you, if you deal with a typical secular materialist, which many people are functionally, even if they don't know those words, they're going to say something to you, well, like, I know everything I know because we can prove it by science. Well, that, that's not really an answer, right? That's making a whole bunch of assumptions that things like your, the ability to observe things with your senses and to trust your reason and to process ideas are all things that are reliable and can be used. Um, and so philosophers spend a lot of time thinking about this, but lots of people just sort of skip over it. And that's one of the things we're going to seek to do with presuppositional apologetics is expose that big glaring assumption or presupposition. Um, finally, ethics, the third branch. This is the most familiar to us. Ethics is the study of right and wrong, good and bad, uh, moral responsibility and duty. It asks questions like, you know, what is good, what is right and wrong, and how can we have good moral character? So in the Christian worldview, um, God's revelation of himself to us in the Word, in the Bible, answers all these big questions. And as I told you earlier, our most basic presupposition as Christians is that the Bible is true. So that brings us to the Christian worldview. Christianity gives us the answers to the big questions of life. Um, it gives us a robust metaphysics. Unlike the atheist, unlike the secular materialist, or unlike the agnostic, we know that God created the world. How do we know? Well, it's in the Bible. Open up the book. It's right there in the first couple chapters of Genesis. Um, we know what our purpose is. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Um, it's, it's quite clear from the Bible. We exist to, to love him, to serve him, to worship him. That is our purpose. We do not have to stare at our navel and say, what is the meaning of life? The meaning of life is quite clear from the scriptures. If the Bible is true, we have an answer. Um, history is, in fact, as I said earlier, moving somewhere. It's moving towards the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth. So we have a complete metaphysics. We also have a robust epistemology. How can we know that God is real? How can we know that we can trust our senses? How can we know that we're really standing in this room right now? Because the Bible is true, because the Holy Spirit has revealed to us that it is true, and that we can trust our reason, we can trust our senses, uh, because we have a basis for it. Um, we can gain knowledge about the world around us similarly, because we can trust our senses and we can trust our reason, our ability to process information. And finally, of course, Christianity gives us a comprehensive system of ethics, and this is critically important for what we're going to do this morning because we're going to end up talking about defending the faith by arguing from morality and ethics. So because the Bible is true, we can know God's moral law, which is set out for us in the Scriptures. And it's, true, it's binding on all people at all times. It's not optional. It doesn't only bind some people. It is written on the face of creation. It is revealed in the scriptures, and it is the basis on which everyone's actions will be judged on the last day. Um, and I would commend to you, of course, the Westminster Larger Catechism um, gives us a robust exposition of the Ten Commandments and, and the moral law. Um, we can, of course, derive additional ethical principles from that, and that's part of what we do when we do ethics. But we don't have any problem figuring out what's right and wrong as Christians because we have the word. So, that's where we stopped last week. Any questions about that before I dive into the new material? I know some, some of you weren't here last week, so I want to make sure I, we're all on the same page. All right, seeing none. 
So what we're going to do now is we're going to compare the Christian worldview to secular materialism. And my favorite way to do this is to use Ayn Rand. Um, Ayn Rand was extremely smart, and she, uh, she, she wrote a bunch of books, which are very popular in certain circles. And if you pull out one of her novels or even one of her nonfiction philosophy books, usually there's a little summary in the back of you know, her philosophy of life. And so I like to use this as sort of a sophisticated secular materialism, right? Lots of people that are secular materialists wouldn't be able to articulate these ideas in these words. But I think this is a nice summary of it. So let's first look. These are quotes, the italic stuff. What does she say about metaphysics? She says her metaphysics is reality, the external world, exist independently of man's consciousness, independent of any observer's knowledge, beliefs, feelings, or desires, or fears. So let's take that sentence. Do we agree with that sentence? Is that right? Yeah, that's right, isn't it? In other words, we're not, we're not living in a dream, and, it doesn't, and you know, th- things don't come in and out of existence based upon what we think about them, right? This podium is really here. There isn't any question about it. That's absolutely right. And how do I know that? Well, I can know that because I can build my epistemology on the Bible, right? That I know I'm here because I know what it is to be a man. I know what it is to be created. I know that God has made me and made me for a purpose, and I can trust my senses and my reason. So I, we agree, right? This means that A is A, that facts are facts, that things are what they are, and that the task of man's consciousness is to perceive reality, not to create or invest it. Okay, well, you know, we agree with that too, right? Because there is, in fact objective reality. That, that's right. Um, thus, objectivism rejects any belief in the supernatural and any claim that individuals or groups create their own reality. Well, so we're going to agree with half that next sentence, right? <laughs> um, I don't really even like the term supernatural um, to, as applied to Christianity because the things of God are, in fact, natural, right? In fact, they're, 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 they're sort of more natural than natural. So maybe supernatural is okay, but what most people mean by that is something that seems to defy reality. And I would suggest to you that the, that the works of God, the God, God's miracles, um, are essentially natural. Um, and then any claim that individuals or groups create their own reality, well, no, we don't agree with that part. So, um, but, but here's the thing, right? I put this down here at the bottom. Consider that these statements coming from the late Ms. Rand, who now knows for sure, um, that this really is just a big presupposition, right? She's not providing any basis for why you should believe these metaphysical things, right? There is no answer to the origin of the universe, and she's supposing that, you know, that your purpose is to process and deal with reality. Well, why? How do you know? What led you to that conclusion? You're going to hear me say that again. Um, and the answer is, eh just is. Um, Epistemology, all right? Man's reason is fully competent to know the facts of reality. Okay, agree with that. Reason, the conceptual faculty, is the faculty that identifies and integrates the material provided by man's senses. Okay, you know what? Agree with that too. Reason is man's only means of acquiring knowledge. Okay, don't agree with that. Um, because we have, we, have, we have knowledge from the Holy Spirit. We have knowledge from the Word of God, right, that we, that we presuppose. And let's suppose, if you really believe that reason is the only means of acquiring knowledge, well, that's, what's the obvious question? Well, how do you know that? How do you know you can trust your reason? How do you know you can trust your senses? And the answer is she's just assuming it, right? Thus, objectivism rejects mysticism. 
an objectivism, as which she calls her philosophical system, which she defines as any acceptance of faith or feeling as a means of knowledge. Okay, well, there we will disagree, right? Because the, we know the Bible is true because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to us, right? So the person who subscribes to this philosophy will necessarily reject that and rejects skepticism, which is the claim that certainty or knowledge is impossible. Okay, so yes, we, we're not skeptics either. Um, so let's look at the first sentence. How, so here's the question. How does she know? The belief that reason is, reli- is a reliable way to integrate information provided by our senses is an assumption. It is, in fact, a very large presupposition which has no foundation in the secular materialist worldview. It's just being assumed, and pretty much any secular materialist has to do the same. Because if you reject transcendental revelation, you got nowhere else to start other than I'm just going to assume that my reason and my senses are reliable. All right, ethics. So here's, here, here it gets interesting. Um, she writes, man, every man, is an end in himself. Well, that's different, right? So instead of man's chief end being to glorify God and enjoy it forever, you're an end in, him, in yourself. He must live for his own sake neither sacrificing himself to others nor sacrificing others to himself. He must work for his own rational self-interest with the achievement of his own happiness as the highest moral purpose of his life. So, really? So, consider, right, if that's your ethics, is whatever makes me happy is what I should do? What if makes me, what if makes me happy is to be a serial killer? Now, that would, seem to, that would seem to go against the idea of sacrificing others to himself, right? There seems to be sort of an ethic here, kind of a libertarian ethic, that I can do whatever makes me happy as long as I don't interfere with somebody else's right, you know, right to do the same. Well, but even that seems deeply problematic, right? I mean, you know, what, what if relatively minor things that I might do, like choosing to buy a particular house and move in there, what if that makes the neighbor unhappy? Um, how, how am I going to reconcile those, those, those things? But more importantly... Setting aside the internal inconsistencies and problems, how do you know? By what authority? You're, you're setting out a, an ethical and moral system, and it's just what you said. It's just what you think. What is the basis for it? By what authority do you get to impose this ethical and moral system on other people? Crickets. Nothing. Because there is no authority. All right, I also point out to you, brothers and sisters, pursuing your own happiness apart from worshiping and serving God is a futile exercise. And if you lived very much and observed other people, or perhaps yourself, you've no doubt learned this, right? Chasing your own happiness is like a dog chasing his tail, right? You will invariably make yourself miserable because of your constantly shifting emotions and desires, um, and we've all seen this. Um, yes, sir, I believe there's a question. Thank you, sir. And let, let me say, that's, I agree with everything that you said. I'm not intending to do a comprehensive critique of objectivism. We're, we're, we're just sort of... <laughs> yeah, fair enough. No, but the comment for the recording is that um, if we look a little more deeply at Ayn Rand and her philosophy, there's inherent inconsistency because her heroes inherit heroines, perhaps people like you know, Hank Reardon, Dagny Tabert, um, John Galt, that they seem to achieve their greatest satisfaction in doing right by other people, and that's inconsistent with the virtue of selfishness. And I, I certainly agree with that. So... Moving on, because we have a lot of material, um, your unhappiness is, is no way to be happy. Let's just say that. There's no meaning apart from God. So, looking into, back into worldviews, remember that the Christian worldview has its presuppositions too. 
but ours are consistent, and our basic presupposition is that the Bible is true. It is, in fact, our philosopher's stone, our one true thing on which we can build a cohesive um, order of the world and philosophy, and we should readily admit this in conversing with the agnostic or the atheist. So now we turn to the main object of this class, and that is, in, and not just me today, I mean the whole, the whole series, is the transcendental argument for God. And this was Cornelius Van Til's sort of big idea, um, and it's kind of the essence of what it means to be a Van Tilian, is to do the, the TAG, the transcendental argument for God. It is both easy and powerful once you understand it. There is not a person in this room that cannot make an effective transcendental argument for God with anybody that you might be talking to. And by the time we finish, you're going to be able to do that. Um, and that is absolutely my goal um, for you. So remember, presuppositional apologetics seeks to defend the faith by exposing the presuppositions of the unbeliever, contrasting them with those of the Christian, and demonstrating the irrationality and absurdity of the unbeliever's position. Right? That's what we're doing. And one very powerful way to do that is the transcendental argument for God. Right? And here's Van Til's quote that I showed you the first week. He says to Greg Bonson, It's never about winning, Greg. It's about exposing their inconsistency. God does everything else. Never forget the antithesis. So what are we talking about? Well, what we're doing is we're setting up the Bible as a written expression of the Christian philosophy of life and then inviting other worldviews to be compared to it. We then gently demonstrate that the other worldview is deficient. Sorry, yeah, and I, I'm putting the, the fill-in-the-blanks here in, in bold, so, yeah. Um, so the, fir <laughs> the, the, the first item on your handout is, the answer is transcendental argument for God. The second one is what we are doing is setting up the Bible as a written expression of the Christian philosophy of life and then inviting other worldviews to be compared to it we then gently demonstrate that the other worldview is deficient. I forgot to uh, bold compared, sorry. So, I keep throwing around that word transcendental. What in the world does that mean? It's not a word we use in everyday conversation. Transcendental is all knowledge that we assume to be true, that we do not know by natural science. And this is a, a definition I put up here from Immanuel Kant as quoted in Greg Bonson's book on Van Til, if you want a more technical definition. Kant says, I entitle transcendental, and I guess he said it in German, right, that this is translated. I entitle transcendental all knowledge which is occupied with the mode of our knowledge of objects insofar as this mode of knowledge is to be possible a priori. And a priori in philosophy means stuff that we, that we, you know, we know before we start basically a presupposition, an assumption, something that we know, you know, before we start reasoning. So it's all the stuff that we're assuming to be true is your functional definition of transcendental, but it really means something that's, that's not known through our senses in natural science. That, that, that's sort of the key for what we're doing here with the transcendental argument for God. So how do we do a TAG? Well, this is from Bonson, and I'm, I'm going to simplify it for you, but this is his words. A transcendental argument begins with any item of experience or belief whatsoever, and proceeds, by critical analysis, to ask what conditions or what other beliefs would need to be true in order for that original experience or belief to make sense, be meaningful, or be intelligent, intelligible to us. So, let's break that down. 
In other words, what's something that you believe, and how do you know? That's the transcendental argument. Because once you iterate that a couple times, you're going to kind of peel the onion, and there's not going to be anything in the middle. And we're going we're to demonstrate how to, how to do that. And this will work with any item of knowledge, right? Um, if you said to me, well, I know that astronauts landed on the moon in 1969, I could say to you, well, how do you know? You say, well, I saw it on TV, right? You know, Walter Cronkite came on TV and showed me the pictures. Really? Well, how do you know that was true? How, why do you believe what Walter Cronkite says? How do you know those pictures weren't filmed on a Hollywood uh, you know, set? Right? And we're pretty cool. Well, maybe I don't. I don't know. You know? And, and, um, but, but it can be something as simple, you know, I know what, day, I know what my birthday is. <laughs> really? Do you? <laughs> How do you know? Um, and you know, there are endless examples, but we, we're all operating on a very elaborate network of knowledge, which at its bottom requires us to assume that we can rely upon our reason and our senses and information that's been communicated to us by other people, right? And most of the really sort of high-level stuff, like we're going to have worship this morning at 1045, right? You don't even think about why you know, right? You just sort of operate on the assumptions that that's true um, because it's always worked for you before. It's kind of based on, it's that worldview question. It's based on your prior experiences. But at bottom, if you don't have something down there, in our case of the Bible, it's all this sort of very shaky castle in the air. But the, the, what we're talking about today, and what I want you to focus on, because I think it is the preeminent apologetic method for our age, is doing the transcendental argument for God by reasoning or arguing from morality. And this is our number four on the handout. Um, reasoning from morality. This approach will work with almost anyone who is honest. The person that you are speaking to does not need to be particularly educated or sophisticated or have ever taken a philosophy class. And because everybody has basic ideas about right and wrong. Otherwise, you couldn't function, right? Everyone makes moral assumptions and has moral principles. And frankly, some of the people who are the most hostile to Christianity in our present context, culturally, here in Richmond, Virginia in 2023, are the ones who make the strongest and most bold moral propositions, right? And ones for which they really have no basis whatsoever. And so what we're going to learn how to do is to expose those and demonstrate that there's no basis for them. But we need to do this gently. Let me say that, this. I, yelling at people in the street um, is not a very effective way to do evangelism or to do apologetics. Right? Because you might defend the faith, it might be there's somebody else there who hears you yelling in the street uh, who could be persuaded, but I would imagine that folks are going to be a lot more persuaded if you speak reasonably and deliberately in a winsome way. Um, I heard a, uh, an amusing quote this week from the late Harry Reeder, who was pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and who died a few weeks ago, um, that you should say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't be mean when you say it thought that was helpful. So when we're dealing with these moral propositions, any moral proposition at all, right? It's wrong to murder people. Easy, the, 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 your, your response is easy. Well, how do you know? 
by what authority? Or maybe says who? It's, you know, it, it's, it's absolutely immoral for states to outlaw abortion. Okay, I understand your position. What makes you say that? What's the authority for that? You just made a moral statement, right? You just, you just, you just made an ought statement that everybody ought to act in a certain way. Well, why? And you're probably going to get an answer, something about like, some, some belief that maybe underlies that, right? Something about personal freedom or autonomy, or I want to live my life the way I want to live my life, and nobody should be able to get in my way, or some, something like that. Well, okay, well, why? By what standard? And unless the person that you're talking to is going to make some appeal to God or something like God, within a couple of questions, it's just a matter of opinion. Now, you might make a move towards collective opinion. You might say, well, you know, we took a survey and 75% of the people in Richmond, Virginia agree with me. Okay, well, that's nice. But is that a moral statement? If 75% of the people in Richmond, Virginia think that we should have chattel slavery, which was certainly once the, once the case, should we do that? Really? We're going to do morality by survey? That's, no, that's, not, that's not moral authority, right? That's just mob rule. Um, so that's, that's not going to be very effective for us. Um, so part of the inconsistency that we seek to expose is that all people have moral instincts. Nobody walks around contending that everybody is free to do whatever he wants, right? You're not going to meet anybody like that. Now, you might meet some people who are sort of saying that, but they don't really mean it, right? Because if you say to me, well, gee, Matt, I think everyone should be able to do whatever he wants. I said, really? How about if I shoot you in the head and take your wallet? How would that be? So you, really, you don't really mean that, do you, right? What you mean is you get to do whatever you want and everybody else has to live by your rules. Is that it? Why? By what authority? And, but the, the real reason nobody can go around saying this is because the law of God is written on his heart, right? It's written on the hearts of the reprobate as well as of the elect because God made us all. We all bear his image. His law is written on the face of creation and, and there are many, most perhaps, who are in rebellion against God. Because unless you've been reconciled to him by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are in fact at war with God, and you are in rebellion. Now, a word about moral relativism. Um, and this is number eight on your handout. Um, if, you, if you've been to college, you probably at some point took a class on ethics or, or morality and were exposed to moral relativism. And even if you haven't done that, you've probably run across somebody who spouts this at some point. And there's a few different versions of moral relativism. In its simplest form, there's individual moral relativism, which says, I am only bound by those moral rules which I choose for myself. Well, I hope you'll see, because it's fairly obvious if you think about it, that's the same thing as no morality at all, right? If we all just get to choose, then there's no, rules that, there's no rule that binds any two people. And even as to yourself, well, do you get to change? Is it a one-time choice? Like I have to pick my list of moral rules and I'm stuck with them for life? Or can I change next week? Or how about the next five minutes? Or how about as soon as there's something I want to do that violates one of those rules? Right? So individual moral relativism is just dumb. It's something that gets adopted by undergraduates who want to do stuff they know they're not supposed to do when they want something to say in response, right? That's, that, that's about the, the extent of the value of individual moral relativism. Um, and then there's some other versions of it, like a sort of cultural moral relativism, which says, I'm only bound by the moral rules that my culture has adopted, right? So murder might be perfectly fine if I lived in classical Japan, but it's not okay um, here in Richmond, Virginia in 2023. 
well, is that really true? I mean, that produced some highly, first of all, it's, this, this is all subject to the overarching critique of by what authority, right? And that mob rule isn't morality, but it also produces some highly counterintuitive results. So you can pretty quickly say, okay, well, what about rape as a weapon of war that we've seen done in, in Africa, right? Is that okay? Apparently it's okay in their culture. You know, I, I, you can always you know, resort to any historical practice. I mentioned chattel slavery a few minutes ago. That's certainly a good one that a lot of people are going to react very strongly to. Um, one thing that you hear an awful lot about today is all you know is, is various versions of you know racism appeals to racism, racism bad, um, and all sorts of versions of that. Okay, well, why? Why is racism bad? What's wrong with racism? By what authority do you say that? Right? You're making a very strong moral proposition and asking people to make all sorts of structural changes in society based upon that moral proposition, what's your authority for that? Is it just your opinion? You're saying it awfully loud, but you know, why? And so we can do this with almost anything. Um, but I wanted to make the point to you that moral relativism is essentially the same thing as no morality at all. And if we look at some other popular, popular ethical systems, sort of moral systems that have been postulated by philosophers, obviously I, I don't have time to do an exhaustive survey, but think about something like Jeremy Bentham's utilitarianism, right? We're going to do that which produces the greatest good for the greatest number. Well, my first response to that is, what is the good? Right? Without appeal to God, how do I even know what's good for anybody? And then, assuming I can figure that out, by what authority do I adopt a, a moral system that produces the greatest good for the greatest number? Why do you get to impose that on me? What if I'm on the downside, right? What if I'm not the greatest number? What if you have to, you know, hang me in order to produce the good for the other people? Well, that doesn't seem very good. I don't think I'm going along with that. By what authority do you get to impose that upon me, right? So any moral system is subject to the critique that there is no authority for it apart from God. All right, let's look at a couple versions of this. Um, you encounter somebody who says, I don't believe in absolute morality. It's about what's right and wrong for me. You have your morality, and I have mine. So what would you say back to somebody who said that to you? Somebody. You Sir? Do you, Do you believe that absolutely? Right. That's a, that, that's a, a good sort of witty quip, uh, <laughs> because it clearly is, in fact, an absolute statement, right? Um, and more importantly, what would you might say back as well? Do you believe there are no moral rules at all? Are we all free to do whatever we want, really? And perhaps let's consider some counterintuitive examples, because I don't think you really mean that, sir. Very good. Um, and another version, don't try to impose your morality on me. Um, okay, well, you certainly are imposing your morality on me. Um, you know, am, I, am I free to rob you? Uh, I, I, probably not. Um, there are, of course, universal moral truths, and they are necessarily universal, because they're not universal, they're meaningless. They aren't moral truths at all. The nature of a moral truth is that it must be universal or it's not a moral truth. Now, here's a good one that you hear all the time. You can't legislate morality. Well, of course you can legislate morality, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's sort of the nature of what it means to legislate, right? Is to take some, take some idea of how you want to behave and make it a law and enforce it by guys with guns, right? That's, that's sort of what we do when we make laws, right? If you, if you steal my car and we can figure out who did it, the police are going to come find you and haul you off to jail and give me my car back. That is, that is the nature of morality. So of course you can legislate morality. It doesn't make any sense. What people who say that usually mean is, I want to engage in some kind of immoral sexual behavior and I don't want you to stop me. That's usually what they mean when they say that. They're, they're very limited what they actually mean about legislating morality. 
Um, you know, and let's, I put some examples up here. Um, punishment for murder, rape, robbery, larceny, child pornography, racial discrimination, hiring, etc. These are all things that people, most people, really want to have legislated, uh, and they're based upon moral principles, and all subject to the critique of, well, why? What's your basis for, for any of those things? Why, why shouldn't they be allowed? And why should you get to send men with guns over to my house to haul me off to jail if I do those things? Yeah, they basically, what it, the, the, the person who's saying this to you, this don't legislate morality, what it usually means is, I want to legislate my morality and not yours, as opposed to the idea that you shouldn't do it at all. Um, dealt with that. All right. So if we're going to argue from morality, we need to start with the understanding, and I said this earlier, that everybody feels strongly about something. Any conversation you're having about any kind of public policy or ethics or whatever it is, somebody's going to make a statement to you, an ought statement, of we people should do this or should do that, right? And the people who feel most strongly usually like to plaster their car with bumper stickers or wear T-shirts with slogans on them or pins or you know, whatever it is. So I gave you some examples here um, and think about how we can deal with these. It's wrong to pollute the environment. So if somebody says this to you and say, oh, so really you, you don't think we should pollute the environment? Well, you know, if it happens, I agree with you that it's bad to pollute the environment. Because I'm a Christian, and in Genesis, I'm given the dominion mandate, right? I have to, I have to care for the world and preserve it and, and you know, tend and keep it because it's not mine. It's been given to me in trust from, from God. Why do you think it's wrong to pollute the environment? Well, I want to preserve it for future generations. Well, why? What do you owe the future generations? Why not just use it all up now? Right? Isn't it kind of most, you know, folks, it's bad to have kids anyway, right? It's too many people. There are pox upon the earth. Um, you know, why? Um, society should care for the poor. Oh, really? So you're submitting as an ethical and moral maxim that we all ought to have to pay taxes to support um, you know, other people? Well, what's your basis for that? Still waiting. Oh, you just emotionally feel that way. You feel sorry for them, and therefore you want to spend my money, right? Oh, okay. Well, you know, it turns out in Christianity, um, you know, there, there's all sorts of stuff about caring for the poor, because the poor will always be with you, et cetera. And I can, we can talk about that in front of the Scriptures. Without the Scriptures, right, tell me, I don't know. Um, or maybe you've got a libertarian who's almost, the government should leave me alone. You know, taxes are theft. Um, Really? You have a right to personal autonomy? Well, where's that written down? Why do you get to impose that on me? You're a pretty rich guy. I want some of that money for, to, to help take care of the poor. Why should you get to keep it? Um, I mentioned racism earlier. That's a big one. You can always you know, go on about that because people are going to feel really strongly about it and say, okay, well, you know, okay, yeah, yeah, racism is bad. Uh, why? You know, I, can, I, I can talk to you about, like, say, the Sixth Commandment, but what do, what do, what do you have? Um, you know, I mentioned abortion earlier. People, whichever, whichever it is, either abortion is wonderful and everybody should have one, or abortion is horrible. Well, okay, why? You know, what 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 right is there to, to life, or what right is there to personal autonomy, and and what is your basis for it? Any of this stuff, right, is going to get you down to the fact that you got to have some authority for your moral statements, and if you don't, they're just matters of opinion. So what we're, what we're going to do, as I just was trying to demonstrate for you, is pick some moral belief, whatever it is, and drill down, peel the onion, to figure out what the basis for it is. Find the common ground with a Christian worldview and explain that your moral views are based on the law of God as set forth in scriptures. Um, here's a good one. Laws that prohibit gender-affirming care for children are immoral. We've heard a number of politicians saying this or words to this effect recently. 
So what might you say back? Well, sir, what led you to that conclusion? I know you said, you just made a very strong moral statement. What, uh, what led you to that conclusion? And you might get something back along the lines of, well, you know, it's fundamental to our system of ordered liberty that you have a right to determine, um, you know, what is right and wrong for yourself and the nature of reality. I'm giving you sort of a paraphrase of the famous Supreme Court passage. And, um, then, okay, really? Well, why? What's your basis for that, right? Because that sounds a little bit like Nietzsche, right? Just making your own meaning sort of stuff. Okay, but uh, so what's the basis for that? Still waiting, listening. Oh, you just think that. Check. Got it. Um, but we, so we, pretty, so we really don't have any basis for it at all. You're living your life based upon your own opinions, and you want to impose those opinions on others. Well, what's the obvious critique of that? Why do your opinions count more than mine? Who says you're right? Well, you think you're right. I imagine if you didn't, you'd be crazy to be going around saying stuff that you didn't think was right. But, you know, why? And there's, there's nothing, right? This is the castle in the air. Um, here's another one. You know, taxes are theft, and the government has no right to take money from me at the point of a gun. Really, what makes you say that? How do you know? Well, I don't like the government. Don't like taxes. You know, I've got a, I've got a natural law right to be free. Really, how do you know? What's your basis? Got the Bible right here. What do you got? And so we can ask a series of questions, right? We're, we're going to be remember. We want to be winsome. We don't want to mock. We don't want to scoff. So I gave you some questions here. Well, really, sir, what makes you what makes you say that? I, I, I'm interested to hear more about it. Because remember, everybody wants to tell you what they believe, right? They don't want to listen to you talk, but they love to tell you. So let them tell you. So are you saying that taxes are morally wrong? What uh, what moral rule supports that assertion? And what's your authority for that proposition? And of course, finally, how do you know? So without transcendental authority, all moral statements are matters of opinion. The statement that stealing is wrong is no more meaningful than I don't like theft without some kind of authority to appeal to, right? It's the same thing. It's just I don't like it. So why do you get to oppose your anti-theft opinion on me? Maybe I really want to steal your car. So I think a fun exercise with this is bumper stickers. So I just went on the Internet and found some. Um, I don't even know what to do with some of these. So for the recording, there's a picture now on the screen of a car with a bunch of bumper stickers on the back. And there's one I really like here that says, you don't need God to hope, to care, to love, to live. And it cites a website called livingwithoutreligion.org. I wish I thought to go to the website. And then there's another one that says, believe in good. Um, and so, if you were to encounter this person, and who's got this sticker that says "Believe in Good," what might you say? What is good? <laughs> you know, I believe in good, <laughs> but no one's good but the Father alone. What do you, what do you believe? <laughs> How do you know what's good? And you say, you know, you got the sticker on your car, which you must agree with, says you don't need God to hope, to care, to love, to live. Um, okay, well, what does it mean to care? What does it mean to love? Why should I want to do those things? Why would those be good things to do? As opposed to maybe, you know, to hate, to murder, <laughs> to defile. Um, why is one better than the other? And the real answer, when somebody says stuff like this, things that are sort of seem sort of good, the answer is because they really know. It's really written on their heart, on their conscience. 
Their hearts are, they're, they're, the, the unbeliever's mind is broken. Their foolish hearts have been darkened, as we know from Romans 1, but there's still a remnant of truth written on their heart, right? Because everyone isn't absolutely evil. We're all totally depraved, but not everyone walking around out there who's not a Christian is as bad as they could be. And that's because there is some remnant of God's law written on their heart. Here's another one. Um, I have Republicans for Voldemort. I don't know what to say about that. Um, uh, make trade fair. Well, I, I really like that one. Okay, well, this is some sort of political thing about, you know, about free, tra- free versus fair trade. Okay, well, what would make trade fair? <laughs> what exactly do you mean by that, and what would fair mean? And I imagine, I don't know a lot about this, but I imagine you're going to get something about that, well, gosh, you know, you've got some, some poor guy growing, you know, coffee beans down in Columbia, you know, and he only gets a nickel a pound for his coffee beans, but Starbucks is selling them here for $8 a pound, and that's fundamentally unfair, and that should be something to be corrected, right? Well, we could have a sort of conversation about the invisible hand and Adam Smith at this point, but that's probably not where we want to go in an apologetics conversation. So instead, we might just sort of say, well, well what do you mean by fairness, and why do you think that I ought to pay the guy more for his coffee beans. Why should I care about him at all? Well, he can't feed his family. Well, why, why should I care? Why do you care? Better, 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 better question, right? You know, well, you know, I believe in the basic worth of the inherent goodness and value of all people. Oh, well, I believe that too. Why do you believe it? So we can sort of drill down there. We've got another sticker on the same car that says compost. Not, again... I, uh, I don't quite know what to do with that, but I, I agree compost is a very useful thing. Um, I, but, but I imagine this is something along the lines of, you know, you should compost your food waste and your yard waste rather than putting it in the landfill. So, oh, okay, because, you know, landfills are filling up. and they, they, oh, Okay, well, that, you know, I, that sounds like a good idea, but, but why? Why? Now, apparently you want me to do that as opposed to just you doing it, so why? Why should I do it? What's your basis for it? Why should I care whether the landfill's full? So you see, you see the method I'm trying to, to get across here, right, is that whatever it is, now here's another one. Uh, I couldn't remember. This was a bumper sticker that was for sale on the Internet. It says, this, this is our country, not your church. Um, and, it's, and it's got sort of a rainbow-colored background on it. Um, I said, oh, really? We could have a great conversation about this one. Um, well, so what do you mean by that? Well, I don't like it when Christians try to pass laws to you know, impose more, moral principles on me that I don't like. And they probably won't even say it that nicely, but we'll sort of, sort of drill, we'll peel the onion a couple layers before we get to that. And say, so, oh, really? Okay. So do you think that all the moral principles espoused by Christians are wrong? Well, you know, like murder and theft and, you know, robbery? You, think, you, don't, you, don't, want, you don't want those to be? Oh, no, I want those, those laws. So it's really just a subset of the laws in the Bible you don't like, right? How do you distinguish one from the other? Because you seem to want to pass some laws telling us all what to do. What's your basis for them? So you say mine shouldn't be based on the Bible. What are yours based on? Right? And we should say this, remember, say this politely, right? I'm sort of lecturing on it and getting a little bit fired up. But you can have this, this conversation. You can have this conversation in a very measured way. Well, really, tell me, tell me more about that. And you'll always be more effective, oh, by the way, if you're in relationship, right? This isn't the first conversation you ever had, right? If you've got, if you've got some basis to trade on, right? Some, some value, some relational capital, perhaps. All right, here's another one. Um, so this is a, a, a car. It's got two stickers on it. One says, coexists in rainbow colors. And the other says, Jesus was not a racist Republican bigot. Now, we can talk about that all day, right? Um, and, and say, okay, well, let's, let's back up and think about it. I, I assume what you're suggesting 
is that there are some people that believe in Jesus who you think are racist, Republican, and bigots. All right, well, let's set that aside for a minute. And you're making a claim, a historical claim here about Jesus and what Jesus taught. How do you know? What do you know about Jesus? What do you know about what Jesus taught? What do you know about how he behaved? Well, there's only one reliable place to know that, and that would be the Bible. So do you actually want to know? Because if you do, I'd, I'd love to sit down and go through the Scriptures with you and we can see what Jesus actually said. Because Jesus certainly wasn't a Republican, because there's no such thing as a Republican. And he certainly wasn't a bigot. Um, and he certainly wasn't a racist. Those things are all true. So setting aside what conclusions you might have reached, what Christians and some people adv- advocate for politically, and we may disagree on that, but why don't we talk about what, you know, you're making a claim here about Jesus, why don't we explore the truth about Jesus, which we can only know through the Bible. Um, you know, may, I, I, I'm not saying that you're, this, you're the person with this bumper sticker is suddenly going to say, great, let's have a Bible study. Um, <laughs> but you never know, right? The Lord converted Paul. Um, now this one, I don't know what to say about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so for the recording, this is a bumper sticker that says, if Jesus had a gun, he'd still be alive today. I, I, I don't even really know where to start with this one. I, this, 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 may, this may have stumped me. Uh, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I assume this is meant, in, meant to be some sort of humor. Um, but you could say, oh, really? So you think Jesus didn't have the ability the, the, to, to stop the people that were trying to hang him on the cross and kill him? Well, and how do you know? Well, why don't we explore that? Why don't we talk about, you know, Jesus and the nature of Jesus, Right? Because are you saying you think Jesus was just a man? He was just human? He didn't have any, any power at all beyond an ordinary man? And if so, why? How do you know? Whereas if Jesus is God, which is the claim of the Bible and one of the central tenets of Christianity, then you know, weapons or not weapons don't seem very significant, right? He could have a, you know, a legion of angels at his command. Um, it certainly would have mattered whether he had you know, a Colt 45 or an AR-15. So anyway, I just thought that was amusing. I couldn't resist. So this... I'm going to wrap up with this. This was from Instagram this morning. And this is a, uh, an atheist named Richard Carrier, who's got a, got a meme here on Instagram. Uh, the account's called Seattle Atheist. And it says, it's describing Christianity as the belief that some cosmic Jewish zombie can make you live forever if you symbolically eat his flesh and telepathically tell him that you accept him as your master so he can remove an evil force from your soul that is present in humanity because a rib woman was convinced to talk by a talking snake to eat from a magical tree. So this is, this is you know, a mockery of Christianity. Now, I'd, li- I'd love to talk to this guy, right? And, and say, okay, well, I take it that you don't believe that Christianity is true. I take it you've conceived the claims of Christianity and you think they're false. Okay, I understand that. So what am I going to do now? What am I going to say to him? Let's talk about your worldview. You're rejecting Christianity... What do you believe, sir? What do you believe the purpose of life is? What do you believe uh, the, the ethics and morality by which we ought to live are? Let's talk about that, and let's talk about why. Because if you're truly an avowed atheist, I'm going to stump you in like two questions. And so is everybody in this room now, right? Because as long as you make a moral statement, as long as you think there are rules by which we ought to live, and there's all sorts of clubs and organizations out there for you know, ethical atheism, which doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, let's just ask a few of those questions. And you're going to get something like, and I got this recently, 
I don't need to believe in God to be a good person. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is the good? What does it mean to be a good person? And how do you know? We're out of time. We'll pick this up next week. Thank you, everyone.